Right, hello, welcome to the latest episode of the Big Football Podcast. Uh, often as always, my name's Dan and I'm joined this evening by Paul. Good evening, Dan. And Cam. Good evening, good to be back. How, yeah, how are we, gents? It's been a while. Yeah, yeah, very well, thanks. And it's time to uh, reconvene. Yeah, no, it, it has been a while, Dan. I've, I've, I've very much missed our, our conversations, but... um. I've also got my head uh, deep in the Cheltenham form book, given that we, uh, well, two weeks today, I'll, I'll just have seen the last of the live races for me this year, but um, I'll be at the festival on the Wednesday and Thursday and uh, hopefully coming back a little bit richer. <laughs> well, Cheltenham will always make me think of my dad. Uh, it was his favourite weekend of the year, bar none. Um, so, good luck. Um, Thank you. If we kind of turn this away from the horse racing podcast to the the big football podcast um first of all a reminder that we're on spotify podbean itunes amazon music google podcasts and pretty much everywhere that you can think of um it has been a while since our last podcast and already maybe in the what last three weeks since our last show the world is again irreconcilably changed and um, I'm not going to refer to the situation in Ukraine as a war because it's not a war. It's it's an invasion. It's it's one giant war crime. Um, taking political feelings, etc., out of it, um, this is going to have a profound impact on football. And the, the the easiest place to start, and I know we'll kind of work our way um, through the whole situation, um, is with Chelsea and Roman Abramovich. To all intents and purposes, from what I understand, effectively having the club confiscated. <laughs> well, I, I think he's he's he is certainly, I suppose, jumping before he's pushed in a sense that uh, the club is is at risk of um, sanctions potentially. Uh, it is an asset that belongs to Roman Abramovich. He is trying to. I think he is trying to do the right thing by Chelsea and trying to protect it from that as as much as he possibly can. But clearly he is very, very worried about his own situation. I think he's probably right to be worried about his own situation. Um, The West clearly uh, come, you know, full circle on on its approach to to oligarchs, having been quite in favour of them for a few years. Um, And... You know, the situation is so volatile in Russia, not that I'm suggesting in any way that Abramovich would head back there, but he, he, he might not be as protected by the, the regime as he, as he once was. So um, I think it probably is the right thing for Chelsea for him to put it up for sale. It's, it, it marks the end of an era, really, a remarkable era for Chelsea. Um, you know, 2003, he bought the club uh, 19, 19 years ago. Um you think about what they were then. Uh, you know, Claudio Ranieri was the manager. You think of the players they had at the time um, and the transformation that's happened since and the waves that they've been through with the Mourinho years. And, and you know, the, then their sort of almost decade-long fascination with sacking managers left, right and centre and, and still piling up the trophies in the meantime. You know, ultimately his his reign at Chelsea uh, is laden with success, numerous Premier League titles, two European Cups, um, you know, numerous domestic cup competitions as well. Obviously, they just won the, the World Club Jamboree in, uh, in, in the Far East a few weeks ago. So, um, I, I, you know, it, it's, it's been a fantastic 
period for Chelsea, but there's uncertainty of the football club now in terms of what comes next. Allegedly, Roman wants three billion for it. I'm not sure he's going to get that. He paid about 180 million, I think. So nice profit if you can get it. Um, he's not going to call in any loans that he um, gave to the club in the meantime. So I, I do think he's trying to do right. But at the same time, there will be Chelsea fans who naturally will be disappointed that it's come to this. I think naturally will be nervous and, and apprehensive about what comes next. Uh, Roman, for, for all his foibles and for all the, you know, stuff off the field and away from football that's kind of always surrounded him to an extent, always been there in the background as an actual owner of a football club has been remarkably um, successful at doing it and uh, hasn't sort of caused some of the problems that foreign ownership has caused to other clubs Um, and I think Chelsea fans will be thinking now it's not guaranteed that we get somebody as good as Roman again um, I, look I, I don't think Chelsea Football Club are about to go to the wall or anything like that I think that the big clubs now are too big to fail there will be another rich bloke with deep pockets somewhere who, who is willing to um, invest in Chelsea Football Club because you know top football clubs now are worth a hell of a lot of money and they're great assets to have um, but there's no guarantee it's another Roman Abramovich and his investment in Chelsea in 2003 was really the moment the kaleidoscope in the Premier League changed. Um, and I think we, when we look back on the history of the Premier League in, in another 20 years' time, I think we will see that moment kind of 10 years after the Premier League had been formed, 11 years after the Premier League had been formed. The purchase of Chelsea by Abramovich was the moment the game changed completely. And... Um, you know, there'll be people who think that was for good and there'll be people who think it was for ill. Uh, but it, it was a seminal moment in, in British football and everything that's happened since. Um, and I think it remains to be seen whether his sale of Chelsea is a, a similar sort of milestone in the in the roadmap when we look back on things in, in years to come. Yeah, I think that's I think that's fair, Paul. I, I, don't, I don't think it will be, you know, thinking about this earlier. Um, you know, the, the, the takeover back in 2003 was, uh, as you've said, this kind of huge seismic change. You know, there hadn't really been anything like it before. And it's defied a lot of expectations and, and sort of turned a lot of convention on its head of how a, a club and particularly a successful club as it's turned out to be should be run, um, as you've said. But I feel now that landscape has changed that actually him leaving, you know, Abramovich leaving through the back door. You know, we know the sorts of people now that buy football clubs, right? It's either these sort of regimes that come in and, you know, the sort of sports wash regimes, if we call them, that, you know, that ultimately he, in a way, sort of paved the way for a little bit with, you know, if you look at Man City and PSG um, and, and the sort of owners they have, or, or it's the type of owners that, that the clubs we support have, you know, the sort of Western businessmen, the American, you know, the kind of American model um, guys who own, you know, all the teams and other sports come in. Um, I, I would imagine that the owner of Chelsea will be from one of those two pools. Which one? I don't know. It, it's probably 50-50. But I think we know now they're the kind of people that, that have the means and the interest in purchasing Premier League clubs. So I imagine that you know ownership will get handed to, to someone from those two sort of buckets. Um, and, you know, and life will carry on. You know, as you say, that the clubs now, they are sort of too big to fail and they're structured in a way 
um, where I think they're fairly secure and particularly given it sounds like there won't be too many financial ramifications on Chelsea with him leaving, assuming everything he said sort of comes to happen, that, yeah, they'll probably carry on. But ultimately, it still does leave the question of sort of the manner in which they're run and, and how they're run by whoever comes in, because that will, to some degree, will be different, right? Because it'll be different personalities, you know, running the club. Um, and, you know, I think, obviously, yeah, some Chelsea fans, I think probably will be a bit upset and a bit nervous about it because, you know, when all said and done, you know, you've called out the achievements they've made, right? They're in a completely different proposition now to, to what they were 20 years ago. That's There's no doubt about that at all. Um, yeah, I don't know, Dan. Penny, Penny, for your thoughts. Um, I'm kind of thinking that Kepper left a fantastic leaving present for him. <laughs> um, in, in, in all seriousness, it's it's not an, a, a secret. Anyone who knows me knows I don't have a lot of time for Chelsea, but um, the Abramovich era has changed football for better or worse. I would probably argue worse. Um, it kind of normalised these gargantuan transfer fees, which admitted in my own club pays occasionally. Um, but it certainly attracted some of the best talent to the Premier League, uh, whether that be on the pitch or the dugouts. Certainly uh, Mourinho on his Matalan jacket and um, Abramovich go hand in hand. So, yeah, it's, um, it's strange. I, I personally think... Chelsea will get one billionaire owner to replace the billionaire owner that they have, basically, is um, what I can see happening. Um, and yet it is a huge moment in the history of the Premier League, assuming that he, he sells, because it doesn't seem like a straightforward lesson. And Paul, this may be something you know more about than I do, but the, the Chelsea trustees had the, the club thrust upon them one night and the next said... And gone a second, you know, like we, we've not agreed to anything just yet. So there could be some trials and tribulations to come with that. Yeah, I, I think the trustees thing has kind of gone away a little bit, has been superseded by the, the announcement that he's going to sell the club. Um, I think the trustee announcement, which came on Saturday evening, I think, didn't it originally? Um, and then the the announcement about the sale last night I think the trustees had said hang on a minute we're, we're not sure about this I think that kind of idea has fallen away now I think his original plan was to hand control to the trustees and essentially say okay I am on paper the owner but I this is not an asset I have control over I think that was his plan I, I don't know I'm speculating but I suspect that was his plan um the trustees have said we're we're not going to put ourselves in that position where, you know, where we are potentially doing the bidding of somebody whose assets have been frozen by the international community. Um, and so I think uh, on that basis, he said, right, well, I'm going to sell it. I think we should mention that he said that the proceeds of the sale uh, are going to go to um, those affected by the war in Ukraine, by the invasion, as you quite rightly put it at the start, Dan. Um, so, I mean, you know, look, he's an extremely rich man. He doesn't need the money, but, but I think we should, we should probably note that fact. And, and if, if that is indeed true and that is where the money goes, then, you know, that is a, a, a good gesture that he didn't have to make. Uh, and, and I know again, there's a lot of reputation washing that's going on here, but, but if there's, if there is money going and serious money going to people who need to have been affected by, you know, the, the, 
frankly awful events in Ukraine, then then more the better, really. Yeah, and I think, but he, you know, we and we don't want to make this too too political um, for obvious reasons. But yeah, in the wording of both the original statement about the trustee and the one, you know, last night about selling it, both both worded sort of quite strangely and could have used a lot clearer language if they wanted to. Um, there's still, you know, like and like you say, the point around, you know, that the all victims. Well, that's brings subjectivity to it, doesn't it? Right, of who who decides who's a victim. Um, so yeah, we'll wait and see what happens there. But as you say, you know, regardless of whether he sells it for two billion or three billion, I think it was 140 million or something was the was the fee bought it for from um, it was Ken Bates, wasn't it? Um, it's you know there'll be a yeah a, it'll be a sizable amount for certain. Um, they didn't Ken Bates buy Chelsea for a pound at the time? Yes, yeah, so, I mean talking of tidy profits, I mean he didn't do too badly, but yeah, Abramovich will. Yeah, well, Ken bought it for about. I think he bought it for a pound, but on the basis that he took on about nine and a half million pound worth of debt. Yeah, which I think it was early eighties, wasn't it? Eighty two or eighty three. That was a lot of money back then. I mean, it's a lot of money now, but, but mm. it, you, you think of what nine million pound was then. Certainly, in a football context, when the record transfer fee was, you know, one and a quarter million, one and a half million, uh, that was a significant amount of money. So he did buy it for a pound, but basically on the basis that he could afford to service the loans, um, the the debt that the club had that was uh, eight or nine million. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, I'm sure, yeah, Abramovich will easily clear, you know, one maybe two billion of of sort of profit. You know, depending on what they, well, they sell. So yeah, hopefully, hopefully it's used for some for some good, and and you know, credit to him if it is. But obviously, yeah, it's 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 you know, equally he's obviously still a very wealthy man, <laughs> um, regardless. Um, yeah. If we kind of like kind of move off Abramovich, but continue on the the very cheerful thread of the inversion, because that's where it is. Um, situation, like. <sighs> FIFA and UEFA initially were doing their usual, is it though? You know, not wanting to do anything kind of thing. But uh, the rhetoric very quickly changed, particularly from UEFA, who have booted all of the Russian teams out of the um, the European competitions. Um, and I have a feeling that, that Russia might get kicked out of the World Cup as well, or World Cup qualifying anyway. Um because it is seven versus one in terms of the qualifying, so I don't see uh, FIFA kind of risking that one. I think they'll they'll go for the the easiest option and get rid of Russia. Russia have been and the teams have been patched out of uh, football games. They've been put out of FIFA. Like, where does this begin? Where does this end? How does this kind of impact the Russian war and in in, in extreme? inverted comments to me i don't really see how this does anything other than it hurt football fans to be honest so uh, my understanding is that russia have now been kicked out of the world cup qualifiers um i think that has now happened albeit you're, you're right that fifa certainly procrastinated in their in their usual um indecisive way uh be, before they got to that decision um I mean, it clearly hurts Russian football fans in the sense that they they don't get to see their teams play in European competition. They don't get to see um, 
their team on the on the national on the international stage potentially at a World Cup. Uh, I think I read today that Daniel Farker, who obviously is a former Norwich manager, had, had taken a job at the start of January to manage in the in the Russian top division and, and left yesterday, having not even taken charge of a game um, because their season hadn't started yet uh, because of, of, of the situation. So I, I think it certainly will hurt football fans in that regard. Um, hurt football more generally. I mean, I'm not so sold on that. I don't know. Uh, certainly it will, it will be, be strange in those European competitions that still had Russian teams participating and suddenly you get clubs who get a buy or whatever and that always makes the competition a little bit um, questionable but I, I don't think it's going to have a sort of wider impact on, on football beyond the fact that clearly for Russian football um, which has been in relatively healthy uh, situation in the last few years um, I, I think it's clearly a massive blow to them yeah, well, they have been uh, banned, but they, they've appealed it as well, so they're not sort of taking oh, right, it lightly. Okay. I think I saw that the, the their captain has now started windmilling on social media in the direction of some Ukrainian players who who voiced the you know criticism on social media. So it's all got a little bit messy on that side of things Classy. as well. Yeah, <laughs> just what we need, right? Um, but yeah, it does feel as if in yeah in a typical fashion. I think all the the, the big the big sort of three or four sporting bodies. So we've got FIFA in UEFA and then there's been the IOC and the, and the FIA for the Formula 1. You feel like they've all just been kind of watching each other's notes and seeing new moves first <laughs> and then copying them because it's like no one wants to be the first one to do anything too drastic but then if someone bans them from something then you look like you're allowing it if you don't do it so it's the last few days it's just been yeah one announcement after the other based on you know oh FIFA have done this so the Olympics have better do that and the Formula 1 have better do that um, but yeah obviously they all yeah it's almost sort of brinksmanship really of seeing who, who blinks first to uh to sort of out and then like scrambling to save face um, when you know when you get the backlash for not having acted sooner. Um, I think I think there's a line in an episode of Minister Khan that is anything can be done, but nothing must be done for the first time. <laughs> yeah, <indeed. laughs> and it's a little bit like that in terms of the way various governing bodies. Yeah, responded. yeah. One thing I can say with certainty: the city will draw by in the next round. <laughs> Um, yeah, well, I, I, yeah, it feels like we've got to a point where probably the, the right decisions have just about been made in terms of excluding them. Um, you know, you imagine or hope that the sort of appeal will be, will be knocked back. I mean, yeah, I, you know, ultimately, whilst Russia are not a sort of bad team and they do qualify for tournaments, it's not like they're a footballing superpower. Anyone's going to be like, oh, I'm really gutted to have missed, you know, what Russia play. So obviously, yeah, it's a shame for russian fans but then equally might have bigger fish to fry at the moment anyway um but i don't think for wider football it necessarily has a you know a huge impact it's obviously also a, a, an issue i mean again they've got far bigger fish to fry at the moment but it's it's obviously also extremely sad for ukrainian football fans um and for ukrainian football players talented footballers dotted around europe playing in different leagues a lot in germany some here in the uk um who are having to sort of from a distance see what's happening to their country and, and obviously are likely to have families still living in Ukraine. And and I think that angle, which I know, um, as you would expect, football in this country has responded quite well. And I thought that um, 
uh, reception for Zivchenko as the as the Man City captain the other night at Peterborough was was outstanding. Um, but obviously, there are those people as well who are seeing their homeland kind of destroyed uh, and are having to try at the same time and be professional and and do their jobs in the way that anyone else would. And um, that can't be easy. So I think I think you know some some sympathy with with the players that are in that situation. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, well said. Yeah, well, it's just like football is supposed to be a sport that like brings everyone together and like helps to ease the the worries. And we've just emerged from uh, a pandemic, and obviously COVID has been scrapped by the conservative TM. But yeah, we now like, have a war, and yeah, just things can be unremittingly bleak sometimes. Um, but yeah, all, all I can say is that I'm heartbroken for the people of U- Ukraine. Um, and I hope that we get a peaceful resolution, but given the people we're dealing with, I'm not entirely sure. Um, if we kind of drive away from the political um, invasion podcast um, hosted by BBC correspondents. What, what's what's Kate Hardy doing? You know, like we we need um, Jeremy Bowen on the podcast at this rate. Um, it's been a, a big week, or a big couple of weeks, really, for in terms of the relegation fight. Um, Newcastle are kind of slowly but surely nudging away now. Burnley have have really bridged the gap. Um, even Watford and Norwich, who were struggling, aren't gone just yet. But really, Everton and Leeds in particular have lurched back towards the relegation zone. Everton are a point of out, outside Leeds too, and Leeds took the decision to sack Mario Bielsa um, this this week. And I'm I'm personally not surprised. Uh, I thought Leeds were absolutely maniacal with the way they set up at Anfield last week. That will work at home to Norwich or away to Watford. That's not going to wash at Anfield or Stamford Bridge or even Old Trafford. I mean, United generally tend to score naught or one can, and they, they stuck four on Leeds. They shipped three at Everton the week before that. They shipped four at Tottenham. They conceded, I think, against Tottenham. I think they shipped 14 goals in three games over six days. So it's not really much of a surprise to me that. Bielsa has fallen on his sword, but can Leeds stay up? Have they made a wise appointment? Well, I, I think um, you know it, it's ultimately is is yeah, it's his, his stubbornness to sort of change that I think's cost him the job, hasn't it? That when when things aren't working, he hasn't tried anything else or didn't try anything else because he's one of these managers that he has his style and you know, win, lose, success, fail. <laughs> um, he, you know, that's just how he plays, and it's like you know what you're getting. Um, I think obviously, I'm sure there's a lot of mixed emotions with with Leeds fans because obviously he's he's brought them back to the Premier League after a sort of two decade absence, uh, or you know, or whatever it is. So it's uh, you know, a bit of shame in that sense. But you know, they they can't you can't ship the kind of goals like that and expect not to uh, to have your job questioned. Um, whether they can stay up, I, I think potentially yes, because I think they probably are you know worse sides than them. But it's it's as you say, Dan. It's all of a sudden teams have started to find a bit of form down there, and it's looking very very tight. Um, so Le- Leeds are in a, a dogfight. There's no no doubt about it. Um, so they they definitely could go down. I, I don't know much about the the fella that's come in in charge. Um, 
So we'll have to wait and see. I, I don't, I don't have a lot of background on him. I know he, he had a, his last stint was at uh, at uh, Leipzig, wasn't it? And he, they they gave him the boot just before Chris. Um, so I, yeah, we'll have to wait and see um, how he comes in. But uh, yeah, they're they're certainly in it, and I wouldn't I wouldn't rule them sort of in or out at this point. Um, yeah, I don't know, Paul. I, I would just say so. I I feel for Bielsa. I mean, I think at the end, yeah, it sort of had a feeling of inevitability about it. I think he's a really good coach. And I think the point that's been missed a little bit in the in the coverage of it is by Leeds have missed their best players pretty much all season. Yeah. Bamford's been out for, for weeks and weeks and weeks. Kelvin Phillips has been out for weeks and weeks and weeks. Jack Harrison has been in and out of the side with injuries. Liam Cooper's missed most of the season with injuries. Who's a real sort of steady any for him at the back. Um, Leeds are not a squad with good enough depth to, to subsume all of these injuries to kind of keep players, particularly the likes of Phillips and Bamford and Harrison. They are their best players. Um, and I think you look at any of the sides down there and you take their best three players out for a big period of time, and they're going to find it more difficult. So I have some sympathy in that regard. He is very stubborn. He only is going to set up one way. I think it's great to play that way and concede goals and still think we're going to score more than you when confidence is high. Once confidence dips, you go a goal down. And whereas when confidence is high, you go a goal down and you think it doesn't matter because we always score. You go behind at the moment and you're thinking, oh, God, here we go again. Um and you're on this cycle of defeats, and it, it felt a little bit like. I also don't know much about the the guy who's coming in. He's he's obviously he's an American. Um, he's had success at, at Red Bull Salzburg. It was Salzburg, yeah. But then failed at Red Bull Leipzig. Um, he's very much in that Red Bull, um, or has been in that Red Bull uh, sort of. Strategy, yeah, organization. He managed their club in the MLS before he came to Europe. So, um, the history of American managers in the Premier League is not the greatest. Uh, Bob Bradley, it's one now, yeah, quite. Uh, he springs unfortunately to mind. Um, <laughs> now he's obviously had experience in Europe and Germany and Austria, so who knows, but um. I also think Leeds can stay up, but it really depends on getting those injuries back. If Bamford and Phillips and the like are out for another four or five weeks, they're going to be in real trouble. I think there are three teams sucked into it because I think Brentford are in it as well. Definitely Brentford. Um, you know, they, they lost the other week at the Emirates and they lost one. You won't see a more flattering scoreline all season. I mean, if they lost eight one, it wouldn't have been it, it wouldn't have been um, wouldn't have been a shock. Uh, they, that, you know, you compare it to the opening day of the season when I know Arsenal had injuries and COVID and whatever else, but Brentford had such an energy about them and got amongst Arsenal and unsettled them. And at the Emirates the, the other week, I know they scored right at the end to, to get a goal back, but they just never played with that energy or that penetration or that belief and that enthusiasm. I think they're in it. I think Everton are in it as well. I think I would say of the teams down there, Everton have the better players. Um, yeah. You know, they've still got some really good players in that side, uh, uh, more than I think Leeds have, and certainly more than Brentford have. 
Um, and definitely more than Burnley have. Burnley have only got about 14 players all told, so that's not hard. Um, and it's the same since 2017. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. Uh, some of them have been going for about four years without a break. So I, I think there's, there's enough in that Everton squad, I think, to stay up. The concern I'd have with Everton is I kind of feel like Frank has no idea because we've talked about it before. The squad is a complete mess, a mishmash of styles and players and people bought by one manager and didn't fit the system of another manager. So he buys three more and then, you know, they even let Rafa go and spend money in January, didn't they? And Sal Luis Digna, who was, was Digna, who was probably one of their best players. Then promptly sacked Rafa. And then promptly <laughs> sacked him. It, it, you know, the whole strategy at Everton, and we probably should mention them in the last uh, section as well, because their non-owner that is clearly the owner has also been subject to sanctions so who knows what that means for the money situation there um i i think there's a lot of instability at everton but i think they've got enough players um leads they need their their best players fit very quickly uh if they get them fit very quickly i can still see it coming down to brentford or burnley i think newcastle will be okay i think eddie howe's a good football manager. He's he's got settled. He got some players in in January. Um, huge blow for them losing Kieran Trippier. I can't remember a time when a right back's got injured and you thought, oh, that might mean they go down quite as much as, <laughs> as Kieran Trippier getting injured because he's you know he's shown again what a quality player he is and how much people kind of get about you when you're out in Spain uh, in those few games he had. But but they've brought bodies in and Eddie Howe's a good manager and I think Newcastle will be fine. Um, so I think it does probably come down to, you know, those three that have dropped into it and the three that have pretty much been there all season in, in Norwich, Watford and, and Burnley. I If I was having a few quid um, and I wasn't saving all my money up to bet on the horses at Cheltenham, <laughs> uh, I would have a few quid on Sean Dyche pulling it off again and keeping Burnley up. Yeah, maybe. I, I do think, like we said the other day, I think, I think Norwich and Watford, whilst, the, you know, the points wise it's not that far I, I do think I do think they're gone um I have to say I think with Everton I think it's you know it's fair shout they definitely on, on paper at least have even though it is mishmash of a squad probably do have better you know they do have a bit more quality they've also got a few more games to play as well I mean they've got three games on Brentford um you know Brentford have the disadvantage of the fact that they've they've, they've played the most of those teams down there um so could see them you know getting overtaken without even them kicking a ball you know um so i think there's that to to sort of be mindful of as well and yeah with leeds it's probably going to come down to do they get a, a new manager bounce and maybe some some players back bounce i don't know if they are due back to be honest with you there's a, you know bamford and phillips and the guys i'm not sure if they are due back imminently but what he might do is maybe no you know i think the point with bielsa is like but if you if you know you've got key players out, don't still set off up in the same yeah. kamikaze fashion, like, which he just refused yeah, to, yeah. to budge from. Whereas you, you'd imagine the new guy coming in is probably a bit more pragmatic or will probably uh, uh, be uh, a bit more pragmatic about it. And Phillips in particular was critical to that because if you're going to throw so many players forward, a good holding midfield yeah. player who's got really good positional discipline and knows the gaps to go and fill becomes critical to you and we saw him do that for England at times in the summer he's, mm. he's he's a really good player Calvin Phillips I'm I'm not sure he's going to be at Leeds next year frankly um 
but but we'll maybe come to that in future future podcasts. That I think uh, his absence almost even more than Bamford's, and, and obviously Bamford's a goal scorer, so losing him's a blow. Um, yeah, he's just been too much to overcome, and I agree. When you know that, you kind of have to cut your cloth accordingly, and that's that's not a phrase that. Mario Bielsa, uh, Marcello Bielsa, sorry, um, that's not a phrase that he uh, recognises has been in his vocabulary, whether that's in Spanish or in English. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Well, it definitely won't be in English, but yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> nice faulty towers reference there. Um, yeah, f- for me though, like what watching the Halley lined up against Liverpool. I just thought that was absolutely cuckoo bananas to turn up and try and play Liverpool one on one. Like you, you just—that's the kind of game where you say, right, we're at home to Tottenham this weekend, lads. They're not in the best form, so let's target them instead and let's just keep it tight here and be careful. But no, there'll, there'll be none of that. But when you're getting smacked four 0 at home by erratic, inconsistent Spurs. That's probably the end of it. I, I personally will quite miss him. Uh, it's not for box office interviews with the media or, or anything like that, but Leeds have been good to watch. I mean, as someone who doesn't particularly like Leeds, it's been nice to go watch them get smashed everywhere, but always the games are entertaining to watch. Always. And I think, you know, I, I can't already allude to, but he's done an incredible job at Leeds. Oh, amazing. And the fans will forever love uh, Marcello Bielsa for what he's done there because they were going nowhere three, four years ago when he took over. Um, you know, they were, went really close to going up the first year, lost in the playoffs, having kind of blown automatic promotion in the final few weeks, get up the second year, and then the kind of COVID stuff hits. They were a breath of fresh air in their first year up last year. Um, and they started this year, this season quite well. It, it's just, it has gone south since, since kind of, around Christmas time, Arsenal bashed them, didn't they, just before Christmas. I think we won 5-1 there, and it it feels like they've never really got going again after that, and the defeats have continued to be heavy, um, which which is always going to bring more attention, and um, yeah, there we are. Yeah, I, th- I think just the, the other final comment I'd say is as well, I mean, obviously, you know, the team I support doesn't exactly have a great relationship with Leeds, but there is a great rivalry, and I think, you know, for that reason, you know, you I would still, you know, I don't particularly want them to get relegated because I don't like them. You know, you, you want your rivals in the same division as you. That's what makes it a rivalry. So, you know, it's been so long without them. And as you say, certainly when they first came up, you know, they were a, a, a really good team to watch and really, really positive team, which a lot of newly promoted teams aren't always. Um, I suppose Brentford, you could put in that bracket as well, potentially. But, um, you know, it would be a shame to lose them in a way so soon after coming up because they are one of, you know, the, the bigger teams in, in English football. Yeah, I, I mean, one thing to say about rivalries, Khan, is there is one team in the relegation battle who I would happily see the back off for a season. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying it wouldn't be amusing um, necessarily to see a rival go down for a year or so. But when you've had a, you know, when, I mean, you know, Leeds were there for, you know, for 20 years, right? Um, pretty much and, out of the Premier League, give or take. So Yeah, they um, went down yeah. in 2004, didn't they? So Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't, you know... I'm, and even with Everton, I mean, would you want Everton to, to, to be relegated, you know, not come back to the Premier League for 20 years? Like, pr- probably not really, right? The Emperor does not share your optimistic appraisal of the situation. <laughs> <laughs> um, before I upset everyone, if we move on to the other end of the table, um, 
I, whilst Liverpool are in a good run of form, I, I just can't see how we can catch City, especially when you get the decision that went their way on, on Saturday. I, I just don't see how we can compete with that, to be quite honest. Um, the title race is very much alive. If Liverpool win all of the games, then it will be on goal difference. Um, and I would fancy our chances in that. We've, we've, we've clawed City back nicely with that recently. Um, thanks, Leeds. Le- Leeds helped, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but just to, to counter that with um, some evidence, Man City did beat Leeds 7-0, so Leeds, mm. at least Leeds are consistent in the title race. <laughs> um, it, yeah, it, it is a title race. It wasn't perhaps when the last time we spoke, but that, that crazy game that City lost at home to... Uh, so Tottenham means that um, it's going to be a shootout on the 2nd of April, I think it is, at the uh, the the Etihad, I think it might be the week after, actually. I think yeah, I, I, think, I think for Liverpool to win, the, I don't think they quite win every game. I do, think that, I do think they have to win it at the Etihad. Yeah. I don't think even a draw in that game really helps Liverpool. I think it, it's not just about the points, which obviously the points matter more than everything. Um, but the momentum of the season will be completely different depending on the result of that game. If, if Liverpool go to Manchester City and beat them, that is a hell of a message in the title race. Yeah, in their own backyard, for, right? In their own backyard. And for Manchester City, that, that is a big mental blow that Liverpool will be striking at that stage. Even if that doesn't take Liverpool top, let's say Liverpool, you know, they're at Arsenal aren't they, in a couple of weeks in the rearranged game and they've got That's, some other fixtures. Yeah. So, you know, let's say Liverpool have dropped points somewhere before they get to that game. And then that game doesn't take them top, but it takes them within a couple of points of Manchester City, same games. The, the psychological impact of winning there. I just think Liverpool need not only to win that game to get closer, but they need to win that game to put real doubt in Manchester City's mind. Um, I think uh, City have, have obviously had a little a little stumble. They, they drew a game, didn't they? Did they draw it? Was it Southampton? It was. Really? It was at Southampton. Yeah. Yeah. I, I I saw the first half of that game. I was I was in a pub and watched the first half of that game and. Uh, and Southampton played quite well and picked him off on the counter-attack. Um, they obviously then, you know, lost that crazy game at home to Tottenham, which there is absolutely no way in the world they should have lost that game. But they seem to have a mental block when it comes to Spurs. It's to you know, that, they do, yeah. That, that's, you know, even at the Etihad, I think Spurs have won something like three out of five or something like that. It's, I, it's crazy. I think, I think the thing with Spurs is... They know they are inferior to Man City, but will break and counter-attack with ambition. So Spurs are definitely a better team against teams who come on to them. Spurs are definitely a better team when they can just play with nine behind the ball and Kane and Son up front. Um, that suits them. And, and there's something there's something to that that City at times get a little bit reckless in the way they throw bodies forward. Um, and they leave nice spaces for for, for Kane and Son to attack into, um, particularly in the fullback areas. Uh, I thought the um, Ken Shallow is a, is a great footballer, right? He's a phenomenally talented player. He's too good to play left fullback. He's also a bad defender, and he cost him that game. Um, I thought the second Spurs goal, he just watches as as Kane gets into the into the space. Uh, 
and the winning goal, he's just got to stop the cross. I mean, that point in the game, you just stop the cross, give away a corner, give away a throw in, whatever. Foul him if you need to, give away a free kick. But you can't let a free cross come in in, in that situation. And, you know, I know Kane then sort of beat Walker probably a bit too easily at the back post. But again, if, if you're asking Kyle Walker to, to beat Harry Kane in the air, I'd say you've already lost the battle at that point. Um <laughs> Cancelo got to do better. So City have kind of opened the door. Liverpool are in great form. They look really, really focused. Again, they'll get a, a you know a morale boost, a sort of psychological boost from from having put a trophy on the cabinet. Because I do think there was a little bit of pressure this year for Liverpool. And it might be a crazy thing to say, but I think there was a little bit of pressure to not end the season empty-handed. They've kind of got that monkey off the back now. They they've got a trophy in the in the cabinet for the year. Um, they, they sense blood, I think. Uh, and I do think we've got a title race. And I think Manchester City have to be really careful because they had that great run of form before Christmas. They've actually not played that well for a little while now. You know, we, we talked, I don't want to revisit it too much, but they should have lost at the Emirates on, on New Year's Day. Um, they were outplayed in that game and benefited from some refereeing decisions. They were not great at the weekend against Everton. And as Steve already alluded to, Dan, they benefited from some refereeing decisions. Man City are not playing that well. And at the moment, if you look at which team looks like it's it's going to kind of go and take it, it, it's Liverpool. So I think for a neutral, as, as Khan and I are, although... I'm neutral because I don't care which one of them wins and Khan's neutral because he thinks both of them should lose it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I think as a neutral, it's going to be a really interesting end to the season. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I think it it definitely is a title race and it seems strange because, yeah, we we were, you know, it has been a few weeks since we've we've recorded one of these and at the time, I know maybe City, you know, weren't, weren't perhaps firing on all cylinders, but the gap was at a point where I think we we were pretty much saying, well, it's now it's just talking about, you know, who's going to sort of finish fourth, which we'll come on to in a minute. And, you know, we weren't even talking about a title race. We were talking about, you know, will, will other teams just go after the, you know, the champions league more or something yep. like that. And, you know, it, it was just completely different conversation, but it just shows how in, you know, just a few weeks it really can, you know, really can change. Um, but yeah, it does, it does make it interesting, but yeah, I mean the, you know, not, neither the thought of, you know, I, I the team winning it is is not great for me, but um, I, I hate to say it, Dan. If I had to pick, I, w- I would probably still have to go City. Unfortunately, I'm really sorry, mate. Um, I, I know why you do it. It's because um, everything Man City does doesn't count. Yeah, well, this is it. No one cares. You know, that's that's the yeah. thing. Whereas, you know, with Liverpool, you care. Like, if you know, if I was being completely objective and neutral, which I'm obviously not, then clearly, you know, Liverpool would would be the, the neutrals team to go for because you, you know you, you're not sort of uh uh you know uh, owned by the, the type of people that own man city for for example and you know ultimately Klopp is a much more likable figure than than pep and things like that but i'm, I'm not neutral <laughs> or impartial so uh yeah that but there we go but no it's it's, it's interesting and ultimately liverpool and city have been you know have, uh, are and have been you know really really great teams over the last few years um, you know, and, and, and me and, and probably Paul as well have sort of watched enviously as, you know, 20 years ago, our teams used to, you know, had really great teams and slugged it out for titles. And now it's now it's, um, you know, now it's Liverpool and City and that's just the way with an occasionally Chelsea. Um, but, uh, you know, you, you've, you've both deservedly won um, a lot of trophies over the last few years and, and played played some good stuff. So it's it's from a neutrals perspective, at least from that perspective, it's 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 good to see a, t- a title race rather than there not be one. If if I put it that way, 
And, and I actually think you mentioned Chelsea there. I actually think, I know we've talked about Roman's strategy early on in a different context of firing managers, firing managers, firing managers. And look, getting rid of Lampard for Tuchel, that was an obvious upgrade, right? There's nobody <laughs> looking back at that decision and going, oh, not sure about that one. Um, but I think, and it'll be interesting to see what happens with the new ownership, but I think Chelsea have to stick with Tuchel for a period now. Because I don't think ability-wise... They are, squad-wise, they are that far behind Chelsea and, and Liverpool. You can still argue. I think Liverpool's squad's getting stronger, but you could still argue Chelsea have got a better squad, not first eleven squad, than, than Liverpool have. I think the difference that Manchester City have and Liverpool have over Chelsea, which is why Chelsea haven't been able to go the pace when, when the kind of, you know, the dial's been turned post-Christmas, is because... Manchester City and, and Liverpool are in year what year five year six of their programs. People know the system, they know the detail of the tactics, they know one another as as teammates and the way they play, their strengths and their weaknesses. Chelsea doesn't have that same feeling of an ethos and a, and a team that completely all know their jobs in quite the same way. Um, again, I almost feel at the moment as if Chelsea are better suited by teams who want to attack them and Chelsea can just sit in and break. And I think, you know, that that willingness to sort of stay patient and break teams down where they're, they're being more defensive against you, I think that comes with the years of practice and working on the system, working on your partner play, working on your cohesion as a unit. And I think Chelsea... That's where they've fallen short, ultimately, compared to the top two. Because when you look at the squad, that okay, there's a couple of holes there for Chelsea, but there is a lot of talent in that squad. And uh, and Kepa. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm going to go to that well for quite a while. That <laughs> that, um, that gave me great pleasure. Well, um, it shows that there's some karma in the world, right? I'm not a big believer in fate and all those things, but after the way. He behaved a couple of years ago, three years ago, I think it was, in mm. that final when they wanted to bring uh, 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 the um, it was a former Chelsea keeper whose name's escaped me temporarily. That's it. Um, they wanted to bring him on for the penalty shootout, and Kepper acted like a spoiled kid. And on Sunday, the professionalism with which Mendy behaved coming off the field for Kepper to go on for that to then and it happened to Kepper. Um, I thought there was a certain sense of irony and karma about that, to be honest. There was, and, and as well, and I don't want to make this a Liverpool show, um, to, for his behaviour during the shootout as well, he was walking to the penalty spot and just generally being a prank. <laughs> and I, like, like I said to you two on, on Sunday, it was, that's one of the worst substitutions of all time. That They brought off one of the best goalkeepers in the league, in my opinion, for Kepper, who is has a good record in shootouts, who acted like a prank before every penalty, promptly dived out of the way of the vast majority of them, mm. lost a, a mental battle with Virgil Van Dijk when Van Dijk still hit at his side, even though he knew he was stuck. Yeah, yeah, and then got absolutely had off by the opposite goalkeeper with his penalty, and then absolutely blazed his. Yeah, his penalty didn't even miss. It wasn't even close. It missed by an absolute mile. Oh, yeah. It, 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 it was like, did he forget where he was and took a goal kick? I mean, that's what it looked like. He struck the ball like a goal kick. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I know goalkeepers are going to go for penalty and you know, for, for strength, sorry, with a penalty. And I'm, I'm not criticising De Gea Khan 
because he's not expecting to, to take penalties, but he like he, he went for the corner, didn't he? And he didn't have enough power with it. Mm. Um, but I think Kepa was just trying to rip the net off, and I, I think we could still be here <laughs> now. Because like, I wasn't impressed with either goalkeeper during that shootout, especially every time Jorginho scores and the goalkeeper goes the wrong way, I want him to cry because just dive late and make him make a decision. I also even, think even though, Jordan I, Pickford figured that out. In fairness, Dan, I also sympathise with goalkeepers now because players get away with what I think are stopping. It's stuttering, run mm. like, all yeah. the stuttering. Like I hate it. I absolutely I completely hate agree. It. Completely, yeah, completely agree. agree as well, uh, yeah. And you go back thirty years when I started watching football, and it was like you can't stop running up to take a penalty. And then they're going, oh, they don't stop. They just slow down. But all this stuttering, it's horrible. I hate it. And I, I just ban it from the game. I yeah, say, I, I, I think it's cheating. It gives it gives it them is. a completely ridiculous advantage. And, and, um, it's... and as if when you're taking a penalty, the advantage is already with you, right? Yeah. That's why it's a penalty. <laughs> like penalties are supposed to be an advantage to the striker. Yeah. I, yeah. So while I agree with you, Dan, both goalkeeper dived. Both goalkeepers dived out of the way of quite a few. Um, I do sympathise with them about the whole stuttering thing. It's This was not on the agenda to talk about tonight, but you've got me onto one of my hobby horses. <laughs> um, it's completely ridiculous, and I sympathise with goalkeepers on it. Yeah, but I'm never going to turn down an opportunity to have a, have a swing at Kepa. No, indeed. C- c- can I just just have one comment? I know we, we've probably moved on from the, 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 the title race, but maybe before we talk about the top four, just to throw this in. City do have, and I know this is only on paper, um, but City, you would probably say, do have the more favourable run-in. You know, yes, they've they got do. the likes of Brighton, Burnley, uh, Watford, Leeds, you know, th- th- whereas, um, you know, Liverpool, I mean, obviously, they, they both play each other, Liverpool and City. They both host Man United, so three points to each of you there. Um, you're welcome. Um, I think I think Liverpool play Arsenal as well. I just Liverpool, you know, I think you've got West Ham this weekend, who you know are a good side. I've said a few times now, um, although they did lose in the cup, didn't they, the other day? But it does, and again, it doesn't necessarily matter because barring Man City, you look at all the teams Liverpool have to play, and you say, well, Liverpool are a better team than them. Um, so I'm not saying it'll make a difference, but Man City might not have to be as you know, 100% to get through those games and still win, I suppose. And, and obviously you've got the Champions League happening in the background as well. Um, just, yeah, just something to sort of throw in the mix. Yeah, just looking at City's running con, because I'd not looked at it before you said that, you look at sort of, they've got Wolves away, as well as obviously, they've got United at home, I think it's this weekend, isn't it, this next weekend. Um, yeah. You know, that that obviously it's a derby game, but you would expect Man City to beat Man United, the, the State United run at the moment. Um, they, the Liverpool game is obviously pivotal, pivotal. Interestingly, the next game after Liverpool, and that's why I think that's just such a must-win, the next game for Man City is Wolves away. And that might be their toughest remaining fixture other than the Liverpool game. And so if Liverpool can go there and them, and then send them to Wolves feeling the pressure a little bit, uh, who knows? Because um, after that, they, they're running then, yeah, Watford leads Newcastle who will probably be safe by that point and on the beach, I'd have thought. Villa on the final day were on the beach. They do play West Ham away, but if Man City get to a stage two games to go where it's in their hands, they'll go and win at West Ham. I wouldn't I wouldn't see any sort of bother about that, to be honest. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, the, the fixture list does favour Manchester City. And again, it just further, further strengthens, strengthens my belief that Liverpool 
cannot win the league without winning at the Etihad. I I I, I think Liverpool have to go hundred percent. I do. Um, but if we kind of like look at the top race for the top four, um, Khan currently occupied by United, but Arsenal have about four thousand games in hand. Yeah, it's it's a really tricky one to call. It could it could go you know right down I think um, because it it sort of seems to swap on an almost uh, weekly or sometimes on the, within the same match day uh, basis. Teams are moving around there. You know it's very very close. Um, you know, like you say, Arsenal do have those games, and you'd imagine. I mean, I think they've got three games on on United, and there's only two points so you realistically you'd imagine that Arsenal would be able to scrape together two points from three games because you know you're a pretty good side um and I don't know who the games are against but even so you'd imagine you'd get uh you know at least so, a, a that, so that's the interesting point Arsenal's games in hand are Tottenham away Liverpool at home which has been re- rearranged for a couple of weeks time and Chelsea away right <laughs> so so the three games in hand are three very difficult games yeah that said Man United also play Man City and Liverpool in the next couple of weeks. Yes, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, I, I think, I think the inconvenient truth actually for some Arsenal fans who, who, because, okay, we had that awful start of the season, first three weeks dreadful, um, kicked into gear. But up until now, we've been kind of like the nice story, and almost I think most Arsenal fans, most sensible Arsenal fans, would say, if they made top four this year, they'd be maybe a season ahead of schedule. Um, however, the position we're in now, Arsenal should make the top four. And to not do so would be a disappointment because you, you look at the, you know, if you look at the maximum points available to, to each team, uh, if Arsenal were to, you know, there are nine more points available to Arsenal than there are to West Ham. Um, I think it's uh, 11 more Wolves, they're probably out of it now. It's six more to Tottenham and seven more to Manchester United. So Arsenal have some leeway. They can afford to lose some games and still be in a position where it, their destiny is in their hands. Um, they have a cushion, albeit it doesn't look like it in the table at the moment because um, they're not on equal games. But they have a cushion. They can they could afford to lose those three games that we've just talked about as being really difficult and still be at worst two points behind Manchester United. Mm-hmm. Let's imagine they played all those three games and they lost them all. You'd still be sitting here saying, Arsenal have still got a great chance because they're two points behind and United have still got City and Liverpool to play. Yeah. Um, Arsenal are in a position where they, sh- particularly, I mean, the, the last-minute winner against Wolves the other week was a, a hugely, hugely important goal. Um, to have taken six points from two games in in the, in a week and a half against Wolves is really really good outcome because Wolves are no bad side themselves uh, and they you know they try to cut goals out of football so if they were one nil up the other night you were sort of fearing the worst um, but Arsenal should make it from here and and like a lot of Arsenal fans kind of don't want to say that because it gives them something to lose. And we've almost yeah. not had anything to lose most of the season, but Arsenal do now have something to lose. They should make four from here. Um, and you know, if we win the games in hand, we'd only be two points behind Chelsea. And we've only got one in hand behind on Chelsea, I think, and we're five points behind them. But we win that game off right there with Chelsea and we've still got Chelsea to play. Now I'm not saying we're going to get third. And I don't think that, 
is necessarily the target. The target is top four. And at this point, anything below that would feel like we've missed an opportunity. I was going to say, I think it's Arsenal to lose as well. And that, that doesn't mean I think we will get it. That's not what I'm saying. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, there have been too many false storms around Arsenal in recent years of, you know, they're, they're on the, the, you know, the comeback trail, whatever. But they should get it from here. Um, and, and that's, like I say, they've got something to lose now. It's in Arsenal's hands. Um, and we'll have to see how the next few weeks plays out. I think these next two games, while United have got a couple of really toughies, Arsenal are away at Watford and at home to Leicester. I think they need to get maximum points out of those two. If they do, they'd probably be in a position where they're fourth with a gap and all those games in hand. And then those games now really are games where you go, well, you can't afford, you know, if Liverpool then come and beat them, which is the third most, uh, uh, you know, the third next game for Arsenal, they play Watford and then Leicester and then Liverpool. If they were fourth, two points clear, and then lost at home to Liverpool, no one would go, well, that's a disaster. Um, They'd still have a really strong position to to go into that end of the season from. I I think there will still be twists and turns, but it is Arsenal to lose. They have a cushion. They have an opportunity to do it, and they they should do it from here. Um, I actually think, like, I think the team that's probably the biggest threat might be Tottenham. Um, but you just don't know what you're getting from Tottenham week in, week out. But Tottenham are the one at the moment who I feel like they can go and win at Man City. I think they've still got Liverpool to play. Tottenham could go and win at Anfield because Tottenham can win anywhere. Now, they could go and win at Anfield and then go and lose at Norwich. That That is who <laughs> they are. Um, and so I think, like, I almost see Tottenham as the biggest threat because there isn't a single game on Tottenham's fixture list that I go, well, they can't win that. Uh, they don't have the toughest of run-ins either. To be fair, you've got no. Brent, Brentford, Brighton, Newcastle down there. You know, it's not the. And I, I think where I said there's no route to fourth, uh, there's no route to Liverpool winning the league without winning at Man City. I don't think there's a route to fourth for Arsenal if they lose at Tottenham. I think they have to get something out of that game. It's getting all for a presidential election. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The route, yeah. the route to. Yeah, who needs Wisconsin? Um, <laughs> uh, Antonio Conte probably wants it, and Daniel Levy won't get it for him. So I don't know if we've made that. Uh, we probably haven't mentioned West Ham, and that's that's really unfair because they're having a great season again. They're, they're they're doing really well. I do think with Europe kicking back in, and you've seen, I think, in recent weeks there are some tired legs in that West Ham squad. They've, they've had a few injuries as well, which hasn't helped. And um, you know, Kurt Zuma kicking a cat. Uh, so, like. There's, there's obviously still a chance for West Ham, but I think it's probably a receding chance. And again, if, if you offer West Ham at the start of the season, you're going to finish in the top six again. They'd have absolutely bitten your hand off. So uh, sixth or seventh for West Ham would be another fantastic season. Um, I don't know that we've made that any clearer for anybody listening. <laughs> yes, just uh, make sure that you take Arizona and there's no problems. <laughs> Um, if we kind of like we we feel like we've neglected the football league a little bit recently because of COVID, COVID was causing a lot of cancellations, and we've we've never circled back round to it. The um, automatic promotion is looking 
like it's starting to get nailed on. The rest of the playoffs is as usual in in the championship. Anyway, absolutely fascinating. Yeah, I I mean, I think I sort of said earlier on in the season I really fancied Fulham and Bournemouth, and and um, still really fancy Fulham and Bournemouth. Uh, Bournemouth had that little wobble, but I think they've won their last four now. They've kind of bounced back. They've got a couple of games in hand. I think they lost a game to the Storm the other week, didn't they? Didn't their ground get damaged and they had to postpone a fixture because of the Storm? I know you look at the table and you say, well, Huddersfield are on a great run. They're only two points behind, but they've played four games more. Um, I, I do think Fulham and, and Bournemouth look, to me, like like the two teams that are going to go up automatically. Um I think Huddersfield have done great, but uh, yeah, good run that they've been on. Can they keep that going to the end of the season? Possibly. Luton are on an absolutely terrific run. I think they've won five out of six. And, and we're unlucky fight, last night as well. We're unlucky last night in the Cup against against Chelsea. Find themselves in a playoff place. I just wanted to reflect on that for a moment because Nathan Jones did brilliant with Luton in his first balance charge got the Stoke job when Luton was still a League One team, went to Stoke and just couldn't get anything going at all. You know, was sacked within a year, goes back to Luton and here they are in the top six in the championship. And I think it proves the point we've talked about before on the podcast that sometimes there are managers who just really fit certain clubs and certain situations. And I think Nathan Jones and Luton is is one of those. I actually... Looking at the teams just outside the playoff places in in the championship, I actually quite fancy Sheffield United. Had that awful start, um, but have really sort of been pretty consistent since the sort of first two months of the season. They've they've really been good. Um, it wouldn't be the most exciting set of promotions if it's Fulham, Bournemouth, and Sheffield United, would it? Because isn't that isn't that basically you know? I mean, I don't know if Bournemouth have been down two seasons, haven't they? But but Fulham and Sheffield United went down last year. Am I right about that? Bournemouth uh, were down. Their, um, this is their second year. This is their season. second season. Yeah, yeah. It's, it was West West Brom or the other. Like, West Brom or the other went down last year. But but essentially, if it ends up being Fulham, Bournemouth, and Sheffield United, all three of those have been relegated in one of the last two Premier League seasons. So it, it doesn't fill you with excitement about new new teams or teams that have been away for a long time and certainly Blackburn and QPR fourth and fifth they feel like clubs who you know have been in the Premier League in our memories but have been out for a fair few years now and and you might want to see back Um, Nottingham Forest is one for me Nottingham Forest have been away a long time now from the Premier League Uh, they were my other my two sort of playoff tips pre-season with QPR and, and Forest. Uh, Forest also had the awful start, but but they've they've been motoring as well. Um, I think almost as fascinating is the bottom end of the championship, where I think you know a lot of people thought Derby really had a shot at one point. It feels like maybe they're just running out of gas a little bit. Um, Reading have obviously had their points deduction, which which means that Barnsley are just about still alive. And I suppose, you know, Derby and Peterborough are just about still alive. Um, I think probably, though, there's only those four in it. Uh, you know, Birmingham are, are 14 points clear of the relegation zone and they're, they're 20th, so they're two outside the drop and, and they're 14 points clear. So it, it's going to be three from four. Um, 
but I think it's going to be really interesting to see who makes it out of that. And I just have a feeling Reading might find themselves relegated. So I, I, I think that means probably Barnsley survive, but I, I've just got this feeling about Reading that um, they feel to me vulnerable. Cool. Uh, yeah. Um, I, I haven't really like the the relegation battle. Does that? It's it's feeling like it's it's starting to to get decided bit by bit. And yeah, I think. And this is difficult for me, as you both know very well. Uh, Wayne Rooney deserves a lot of credit for <laughs> yeah. the way he's that done, Derby is still there. He's done a great job. He will get a better job coming off the back of this. Um, I think. Uh, I'm not sure he'll get a Premier League job next, but if there's if there's championship clubs out there looking for a manager in the summer who are kind of clubs looking to be at the top end of the table rather than the bottom end, I think they'll all be looking at Wayne Rooney, frankly, uh, as, as a possible manager. Yeah, and that's about as close as you'll get to me giving him any credit. Um, just on the on the on League One, Dan. Um, I mean, worth reflecting on yet the latest managerial change at Sunderland. Uh, obviously, Lee Johnson bit the bullet. Um, Alex Neal has been brought in. Uh, you know, Got Norris promoted in his first job in England into the Premier League. He then had a, a longish spell at Preston, wasn't it? Three or four years, which modern standards is quite a good spell. Um, I know some people still in, in Preston who say the football was pretty dire at times, but um, he feels like a bit of a horses for courses picked by Sunderland like this is the sort of manager who might be able to get us up by kind of boring teams into submission for a few weeks <laughs> and just relying on the fact that we should have better players than most of the teams in League One um, but I, I, don't, I don't think he's got his first win yet so well, maybe maybe he has in the last couple of days but um, he certainly hadn't as of, as of the weekend so uh, it'll be interesting to see really with Sunderland whether they can really retain the playoffs because I think that's what we're talking about now. I don't think we're talking with Sunderland about them um, getting back into the mix of automatic promotion. I think that's gone. Uh, I think we are just talking about a, a playoff place for them, really. Well, we're going to go in, aren't we? Yeah, I, I, you know, it, Rotherham are obviously clear. We're going to put games in hand. So you, you struggle to see anyone else sort of crashing into that, really. Um, someone would have to have a really Really good end of the season. Yeah, Sheffield Wednesday maybe again. Just looking at the spot, and Wednesday don't lose many. They've they've had too many draws. They might be the one you give a squeak if Wigan or Rotherham do what. Well, certainly if Wigan wobble, um, they're probably too far back from Rotherham. Um, but but yeah, I think Sunderland are the team to watch for the rest of the season in League One. Um, I think Alex Neal's been given one of those sort of rolling contracts, so. I think if he doesn't get them up, they'll probably move on again in the summer. And I looked this up before the podcast, and it's 18th and period left after seven and a half years in charge in October 2002. Uh, in the 20 years that have followed, they've had 18 permanent managers. It's almost like the problem at Sunderland isn't the manager. <laughs> well, quite. And it's almost like part of the problem might be you know, keeping managers not, you know, not keeping managers long enough for them to really have an impact. I think we've probably said this before on the podcast. I, I, I think Sunderland's biggest mistake was keeping trying to stay up all those years from in the Premier League. 
to the point where by the time they went down, they were an utter mess. And you almost think if they'd gone down the Martin O'Neill year when they brought him in as a saviour and he kept them up, they were maybe not in the worst position to kind of clear the decks and rebuild. And by the time they came down, the squad was a total mess. And they had, you know, the documentary tells it better than I can, but they had the Jack Rodwells and whatever on big money who didn't want to play football anymore. And yeah, just a complete mess of the situation. I think it just goes to show that nothing good can come of having Martin O'Neill at your football club. <laughs> the man, the man I know you're a massive fan of, Dan. Oh, um, yes. I think League Two, and you know, again, not all of our listeners will be big fans of League Two. Fascinating, right? Forest Green are over the hills and far away. They're 10 points clear. They've got a game in hand. The next time you see Forest Green Rovers, they'll be playing League One football. Um and finally, because they've had their share of playoff heartache in recent years in, in the... Uh, well, they, they got over, overtaken by Bolton late on last season, didn't they? Yeah, they, they've, 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 I think they've twice now just missed out on an automatic spot and then failed in the playoffs. They, they've been there or thereabouts for a number of years and, and it's finally going to happen for Forest Green. They're going to win that division go up. Between second, which is Northampton, and tenth, which is Port Vale, seven points. And Vale have two games in hand on Northampton. So, like, it is so tight in that run between second and tenth. Um, obviously, playoffs three go automatically in that league. Playoffs go down to seven. But but there's going to be three teams in that mix who don't even make the playoffs. And uh, it, Sutton United are in there, which is incredible. First season up, doing a fantastic job um, to be, to be in, in that position quite late. Exeter, who again feel like Exeter feel to me like they finish in the playoffs in the in League Two every single season. <laughs> um, so again, they're they're kind of in the, a normal position. Tranmere, who I don't think have been in League One since they had their spell the football league, so uh, it's a chance for them to kind of you know Tra- take Tranmere, a step on their bounce back. Tranmere were a victim of of COVID, weren't they? They got relegated uh, from League One. Oh, did they? So yeah. they had got back into League One, and then they and then they came on right. It, it, they got relegated on points per game. On yeah. points per game. That's right. They did that. That rings a bell now. You say it's actually done. Um, so you know, there's 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 some there's some clubs who've really gone out after it as well. I know Mansfield have, have really had a bit of a dart at it. Uh, Northampton are another of those kind of yo-yo clubs between League One and League Two. Um, it's really Swindon are down there. They're another yo-yo club between League One and League Two. Um, crew, who, as you know, are close to my heart, coming down out of League One. They're another one of those yo-yo clubs. So they'll probably swap places with Northampton, uh, which again, it feels like those two swap places every couple of years. Um, yeah, it's going to be fascinating League Two end of the season. And I think, as we always say in this podcast, playoff semi-finals are some of the best games of football you'll see all season, particularly in League Two, because it is just hell for leather. Um, and I think the reason the League Two playoff games in particular are always great is because pretty much everyone at that level is on a year-to-year contract. So it's, it is kind of now or never for those teams year after year. Uh, and yeah, I, I think I think there's going to be a the final day of the season, um, which might, I think, be Jeff Stalin's ever Soccer Saturday. Um, it will be. It will be a day where I think teams in League Two are moving between playoff positions, automatic positions, missing the playoffs altogether. You could even have a situation going into the last day where there is a team 
or maybe two teams who could still get third and go up automatically or could finish eighth or ninth and miss the playoffs completely. It's that tight. Um, and it's going to be really, really interesting. All I can say is Hartlepool won't be in that conversation. No, they won't. But again, having having come back from a few years out of the Football League for Hartlepool happy. to be very safely happy. comfortable mid-table, I think they'd be very, very happy with that. Yeah. Um, and at, at that sort of bottom end, um, the, the big question, again, for, for those of our generation who can remember Oldham in the in the Premier League, the question is: Are Oldham going to going to survive and retain their their place in the football league? They're on a really good run. I think they're unbeaten in six or seven at the moment because they look dead and buried at one stage, um, but they've kind of uh, kicked themselves back into gear. Um, I think John Sheridan's in charge for his hundred eighth spell, um, <laughs> so uh, you know they've they've really kind of kicked themselves back into back into gear and look to me as though they're going to. Uh, they're going to pull clear of it, so they'd be absolutely delighted because they look dead and buried. Yep, so uh, a summary of the football league and a reminder of the fact that Oldham were in the Premier League, and uh, that's what happens when you let Joe Royal near your football club. That's all. I'll, all well, I'll in, in fairness, Dan, that's a little unfair because Joe Royal got him into the Premier League and kept him there. They didn't get relegated under Joe Royal. I, I'm I, I'm not uh, I'm I'm on a roll. Let's just uh, let's just do. <laughs> well, did they? Maybe that's wrong. Did they get relegated under Joe Royal? Did they get relegated before he got the Everton job or after he got the Everton job? I know Joe Royal was the last Everton managed to win a trophy in '95. Um, yeah, I wonder. Maybe they had gone down and then he went to Everton. Um, possibly, but but certainly you look. You, you know, you look since then, and and I think Joe Royal was F. 12 years, I think, in his first spell. I know he had a very brief second spell, didn't he, as caretaker um, a few years ago. But he, uh, yeah, in his first spell there, he was um, he was in charge for a very, very long time. I think it was 11 or 12 years. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm being disingenuous because of the Evertonian connection. Obviously, Oldham is, is very well thought of. And for good reason. They had the FA Cup semi-final, didn't they, which... Um, Mark Hughes ruined. They did Mark Hughes right at the end, yeah. I think didn't they get to a League Cup final as well, I think. They got to a uh, League Cup final under Joe Royal, I think. I, I, I'm not, I'm not, I'd have to, to research that one. I think they did. Uh, I'm going I'm 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 to research it now. Uh, League Cup finals. Talk amongst yourselves, uh, listeners. Uh, <laughs> this probably... Doesn't make for great podcasting. I'm pretty sure they got to a League Cup final under Joe Royal, uh, maybe late 80s. Let's have a very quick look. And yes, they did. They lost one nil to Cluffy's Nottingham Forest in 1990. Well, well, well. There you go. Because, like, if you think about it, back in the early 90s, and we've kind of come full circle again now. Teams used to take the League Cup quite serious. Well, very seriously then. Oh yeah, uh, so the... to get those in the massive achievements. Well, uh, you have to remember as well, in that period, late 80s, we, we weren't in Europe. Late 80s, 1990, our clubs weren't in Europe. They were still banned. So, actually, there was no reason not to take the League Cup seriously because it wasn't as though you could argue you've got too many games. Um, even we wouldn't have been able to argue there was too much football back then. <laughs> We'd have found a way. 
<laughs> but yeah, it's some some interesting names as well. I've got that that Oldham team that played in the final up in front of me, and there's Dennis Irwin was in that side. Earl Barrett was in that side. Paul Warhurst, who won the Premier League with with um with Blackburn, was in that side. Uh, Andy Ritchie up front. So yeah, uh, who was in goal? Andy Rhodes. The Dem doesn't immediately so, jump out. No, I remember. Well, was it Hallworth? Was he named John Hallworth? John John Hallworth. Was that's the, the, that's the guy I remember as the Oldham goalkeeper in the in the Premier League. Him and then didn't they have Craig Forrest for a bit as well? I I, I think so. But John Hallworth is one of the the names I wiggle out when talking about how much goalkeeping has changed alongside Kevin Pressman. Yeah, I think I think John Hallworth was the. The Oldham keeper that I really remember. But we've probably got sidetracked completely talking about Oldham Athletic. But I, I do think they're going to stay up. And, and as I say, a few weeks ago, you've got, you've got good, good odds on, on Oldham surviving. Yeah, you, you're right. They, they have put a, a good run together. And Scunthorpe have gone the other way good as way. well. Yeah. They, they, they yeah. look like they're uh, departing the Football League. And speaking of departing, I think we better end this podcast. It's been a, a mammoth one, but we, we have been off air for a while. And the truth is, we don't know when we'll be on air again. Uh, life comes first. Uh, we've all been busy in work as life slowly gets back to normal. So uh, we will... Yeah, it, it definitely makes it more difficult to find times to record that. And when you're not just sitting at home all day at working and you're sort of out of the house and, and having to commute and all those things that used to happen pre-COVID uh, uh, come back. So um, we'll try and fit another one in soon. But yeah, um, we'll just have to play by ear. Yeah, uh, we, we can't guarantee we'll be weekly at this point, but we'll 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 see what we can do. Um, we've got a, a, go, a, a good run of football to talk about coming up anyway because the football is now relentless until... Um, the end of the season, and then it's a short summer because it's the World Cup, and yada yada yada. So we, we'll do what we can. So um, yeah, we'll leave it there. Thank you all for listening. Thanks, Paul Khan, for your time, and we'll catch up with you again after a while.